everybody. This is Stephanie Rupert. Thank you for tuning in to the Meaning of Everything podcast, where we discuss literally the meaning of everything. This week is episode number 18, and I'm bringing on Professor Finbar Curtis, who studies religion and politics in America today. So the stuff we're going to talk about today, I am super, super excited about. I feel like I say that every week. Pretty sure I say that every week, but it's very true. It's very true. I'm very excited. Uh, Professor Curtis looks at characters like Steve Bannon and phenomena like Breitbart and also the idea of religious freedom and the idea of free speech and all this sort of stuff and how it's wrapped up together. And it's just uh, deeply, pressingly important, arguably one of the most important sets of questions and ideas facing America today, period. No period. So, I'm I'm very very excited to be talking about that. Uh, so far as housekeeping stuff on my end goes, I don't have anything much to share. Uh, I do have a couple of small things that people might notice. I have a new recording studio, which I'm very excited about, or rather, just new permanent digs here in Oxford. Uh, so I have a place for my books to live, and we can look at them. Uh, if you watch on YouTube while we while we chat, I also have recently figured out what was wrong with my sound card on my computer, and so uh, we're going to be having much uh, much nicer audio streams henceforth. Very exciting stuff. That's all I have to say. I'm continually working on making this a better experience for all of us. So thank you very much for bearing with me. Uh, I want to read a little bit about Professor Curtis before we dive in, just to give you a some background on what he's up to. Finbar Curtis received his PhD in religious studies from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and has taught at the University of Alabama, Lafayette College, Bucknell University, Fresno State, New York University, and the University of California, San Diego. He studies religion and politics and has published essays on theory and method, as well as American religions in Religion, the Journal of Religion, the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, and the Hedgehog Review. His book, entitled The Production of American Religious Freedom, was published by New York University Press. He is currently working on a book entitled So Much Winning, Religious Offenses in the Age of Trump, which is under contract with the University of Chicago Press. What an exciting title. I'm so, so happy we get to talk about this. Uh, Professor Curtis also contributes an occasional blog post to the imminent frame and Leviathan and you, links to which I will provide in the show notes. So I won't waste any more of any of our time. Let's jump to it. Okay, cool. Welcome, Finbar. Hi. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm okay. Okay. And yourself? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm good. I'm, I'm really excited. The winter semester is underway and it's usually pretty chill here in Oxford, although I imagine it's a little bit intense for you. You have a lot of courses. I mean, I'm teaching, um, usually I teach three a semester, um, kind of doing that now. It's not, it's so it's, it's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm now kind of gotten to a bit of routine, so it's pretty right. predictable. And working on a new book at the same time. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing that. Uh, that's a lot. Um, but it sort of was taken by the moment to kind of take on this book project. So, yeah, yeah. So definitely a lot of juggling. I see. Driven by the modern situation or something. Yeah, I mean, oh. you know, was my first book was more well, a mix of historical and contemporary stuff. And that was a book on religious freedom. And I wanted to follow up with something on offense. And I was thinking about giving and taking offense, in particular as a problem uh, for free speech issues, religious freedom as well. 
Um, and I was thinking actually something more historical. Um, and then I just had a friend who said, you, uh, Dana Logan, she just said, you should take on the contemporary moment. You need to write a book on Trump. Um, and so I said, okay, let's see. And then I kind of got some ideas. I started sketching out some chapters. And so that's what I'm sort of knee deep in now. Yeah. Um, actually, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that, you know, just elaborate on that project and, you know, what it sort of, the the questions that you're tackling and, you know, the, the types of areas that you're exploring? Sure. Yeah. Well, so the idea of um, thinking about this moment, this age of Trump, and we'll see if that, that's sort of a working title. I don't know if I actually will end up having that, but it's this moment at least of a perceived crisis of liberal institutions and particularly questions about free speech. Um, and really in a way, free speech and religious freedom kind of go together, at least in the U.S. context, they definitely go together. Mm. Um, and so I'm interested in this, this kind of crisis for, of liberalism. And what's thinking about kind of what liberal institutions try to do is there's sort of a theory of interested people, basically. Um, and that you live in a world in which you sort of balance your interests against the interests of other people. And so liberal principles of compromise, right? However yeah. that works out, which is sort of boring in some sense. I mean, liberalism, when it works well, is a kind of a boring system. Wait, um, and, um, sorry, and to be clear, by liberalism, you don't mean like democratically liberal. You mean... I mean, liberalism in like the broader sense. Sure. Yeah, okay. like the theories of liberties and rights, you know, possessed by... Uh, in theory, at least equal citizens, right? Right. Um, that govern themselves in democratic mm -hmm. states. So in a way, kind of liberalism and conservatism in the U.S. would be really two varieties of liberalism in some sense. Right. Um, and so what I'm trying to think about then is um, how this is now seems to be under crisis, right? Whether it is or not, I don't know, but it's certainly mm -hmm. perceived to be. And so it gets a critique from the left, right? Because the problem is, from the left's perspective, this theory of compromise doesn't really fix the problem of inequality, right? So what liberalism does is it shrinks inequality, it ameliorates inequality, um, but basically it sort of leaves things alone. In that sense, it's conservative, right? Mm. Um, but it's always asking for sort of compromises, so people therefore are always left a little bit unfulfilled. Whereas I think what we're seeing now from what we might call populism or the right or something like that is a sense kind of that actually there's too much compromise. Like mm. you're, we're, we're giving away too much, you know, we're, we're losing, right? So we're, we're losing our nation, we're losing our religion, we're losing our sense of masculinity, we're losing all of these things and we need to fight, we need to resist this. Um, and it lives in a world that, that in which maybe not everybody is a free and equal person, but that some people are better than other people, some people are stronger than other people. Um, and we need to acknowledge that, you know, according to that sort of populist way of thinking about things. Mm. Um, and so I really become interested in this problem of winning and losing. Like, what do we do with that? Like, what do we do with people who are like, no, I feel myself to be vulnerable and I want to win, right? And I think that was a big, that's why the book then is so much winning. It's focused on this problem of winning and losing. And I think that giving and taking offense plays a crucial role in that winning and losing economy. That is, mm. if you can insult somebody and they can't do anything about it, you score points, a kind of social, um, personal capital. Um, and so that starts to bring up these problems that, that liberalism often doesn't theorize that well. That is problems of dignity, of honor, of insult, mm. of, of some sense of your status and relationship to other people. 
Um, and so the book is sort of investigating those questions under the problem of giving and taking offense. Yeah, that's, um, that's fascinating. Did, did we say the title on air? Did, did you say that yet? So. Well, I'll say it again. It's uh, so much winning um, religious offenses in the age of Trump, right? And, and yeah, we did say it because I'm not sure about that uh, <laughs> age of Trump. But, I mean, right. And so what I'm doing is there's a series of case studies. It's not all about Trump. So uh, one of them, which is a paper that you saw back in Denver, was a piece on Steve Bannon um, and his sort of culture of, of insult in his own way. And also an ironic tie to this idea of preserving civilization, right? So mm -hmm. I'm interested in civilization, civility, offense, these sorts of things and how they play together. There's a chapter on NFL protests and people taking a knee and the sort of offense that that uh, creates. There's a chapter on the masterpiece cake shop decision, uh, which is, you know, the dealing with somebody who's offended by same-sex marriage, and so therefore mm -hmm. that affects commerce somehow. Um, there's another chapter on cartoon drawing controversies of the Prophet Muhammad. So it's that sort of thing. So I want to I want to think about how those things are working out in the contemporary moment. Wow, I have like a hundred questions. So <laughs> that's good. It's convenient that we're here. Yeah, yeah good. Um, so this is interesting because. In, in certain parts of our discourse and our political discourse, right? This, this giving of offense is a display of strength and it's something that's really valued. But on the other mm -hmm. hand, right, we have on the left, this like very intentional and widespread effort to eliminate offense in a sense, right? By talking about uh, the kinds of language, right? Like political correctness, the type, types of language that you right. use, the way that you sort of um, hold space for people, you know, liminal communities or what have you. And so what what sort of political, you know, dynamic does this set up where one side is like kind of interested in being offensive? And is it in some way interested in being offensive because the other group really doesn't want to be offensive? You know, what what sort of dynamic is at play there? Well, I think that's, you know, a big part of the question, you know, and so I'm interested in these terms. What do we mean by political correctness, right? That's something that's being thrown around a lot or the antidote, common sense, right? These, these things mm -hmm. are, are held up. And in a way, I've been thinking about those things for a long time. I remember going back to college in the early 90s, now this political correctness time, and we were all thinking about what those things meant. And of course, that term is almost, well, maybe sometimes, but it's usually not a self-designated term. It's usually something that somebody puts on somebody else. Um, but I do think, you know, what you're seeing is challenges to free speech. So one of the chapters is on free speech debates on campus, right? So we'll be getting at those, exactly those questions. Um, and what you're seeing there is some challenge, maybe from the left or maybe from some place that's sort of saying, we're not exactly persuaded that free, unregulated, unlimited speech is so necessarily valuable, right? We're, we're wondering that maybe habits of living with other people require us to think about and respond to other people's sensibilities, right? So just simply emoting yourself, putting it all out there uh, is not necessarily the best way to respond to hate speech or something like that. And of course, that for certain other response to that, for certain kind of, you might say, liberal older professor is like, this is terrifying. How could you go against this very kind of sacrosanct principle of free speech? Um, and I don't necessarily have the answer to that, but I'm interested in those problems. I'm interested in those questions. And so I'm still working through those chapters. But there is a sense there that words matter, you know, images matter, um, and they produce um, and exchange and distribute social power. And there's a recognition of that. Um, 
and that's at odds with the kind of classic idea that you know sticks and stones or, or, or those kind of classic understandings as long as something's not taking your property or hurting your body it's fine and there's increasingly a recognition that it's more complicated than that and that's nothing new I mean I think people have been you know writing about the kind of ways in which words harm for a long time, but I'm particularly interested in this particular moment and how those things are, are working out. So yeah, I mean, as I said, the, the attack on sort of liberal principles of free speech are coming from all over the place. And of course, ironically, then those people then say, for example, someone like a Steve Bannon argues for principles of free speech for himself and say, we're the ones who are really upholding these traditional liberal ideas, which are under assault by illiberal college students, right? So I'm interested in how those kind of spin around. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a very interesting question. You know, how do you assess or how do you adjudicate harm that comes from language? I'm curious if you can unpack or tell me a little bit about, because I just don't know, sort of the history of coming to pay attention to language as it might, you know, impact or hurt people, because it's like you said, this whole sticks and stones thing, right? That's not written into the constitution. It's not a particularly, you know, it's, it's, it's new, you know, this idea of whatever we might call political correctness or um, speech. So what, what is there, what's there a history to this? Well, there's a long, I mean, I don't know, I, I mean, guess obviously. there's different ways of saying that. Yeah, there's, I mean, in a way you could, you know, um, I mean, you could go back to, well, really long history. I mean, I think people have always thought about, you know, different ways in which insults exchange and a kind of honor, right, or things like that. Um, and so there are, in some ways, deep roots to recognizing the power of images and words. And it's possible that the liberal idea that they don't matter is what's kind of freakish or weird. Like, there aren't too many societies that sort of said, no, we're just going to have unlimited offense, right? And that, then that's totally fine. And that, that's going to be our principle. But it, and it's never really been that way, right? There were always, even in the sort of early Republic, there were still blasphemy laws, right? There were mm. still, um, there's always been issues of slander and libel, right? There's always been senses that there are, well, there are certain conditions or obscenity or things like that. So we've never lived in an entirely free speech economy. And then of course, the, the, the ones that you kind of learn from law school are, you know, things like fighting words or injury words, right? So we all agree you can't make death threats, right? Things like mm. that, because that could really harm somebody or affect somebody. But I think, you know, there's a certain kind of critical legal scholarship that takes that problem of fighting words and says, well, wait a second, how far does that go? Because, for example, if somebody is in college and uh, somebody is saying something racially or sexually harassing to that person, um, they might have a First Amendment right to do that, but it does cause real harm. Um, and so to what extent might that create a civil rights issue or things like that? Um, and so there's, I'm, I'm not, there's a body of scholarship that I'm kind of drawing on of people who've, who've investigated those, those traditions, but I do think they've, they're still kind of being worked out. I think the law is still, at least within the United States, which is different from state laws in Europe, continues to be pretty much a wild west of you can, say things unless you're really causing very specific direct harm to a person. Um, and it tends to not respect, for example, collective harms, right? So if you sort of say something about a group of people, that's not necessarily seen as something that is uh, fighting words in the same way to say, I'm saying something about that person. Um, 
But um, so that's kind of still where the law is, but there's a lot of legal theory out there that's sort of questioning that. And I'm not myself trying to weigh in on it. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not prescribing that. But I do want to look at the kind of cultural problems or religion, or particularly the problems for religion that that creates. Thank you so much for this easy lead-in. What kinds of problems for religion does that create? <laughs> well, you know, I think I could say a number of different things about that. I mean, I think for one thing, part of me is kind of from the school of thought that uh, certainly within my the, the book on religious freedom, part of what I was trying to argue is that in a way, religious freedom can be anything, right? Anything can be sort of classified almost as a kind of religious freedom, mm. which in a way then makes it sort of nothing, right? And so in some sense, when somebody says, I support the principle of religious freedom, to me, that's just a kind of question begging claim. Like, well, what do you mean by that? What specifically are you actually defending? And so part of what I tried to do in the religious freedom book was to say, look, I think there's some other thing going on here that we can also investigate. There's something about the way that persons are shaped. There's something about the way the claims of sovereignty work. There's something about the ways that people protect property and they use religious freedom to do all of these different sorts of things. Um, and I think now with thinking about religious offenses, it's similar to that in some way that people, like for example, in the masterpiece cake shop decision, somebody is saying it violates my religion, not if I sell you a cake, but if I custom design a cake for your wedding, right? And mm -hmm. it starts to kind of invent, you know, these kind of novel religious institutions, right? Now we all of a sudden have rules that distinguish between this kind of cake and that kind of cake. Well, I'm pretty sure that's not like in the book of Leviticus, right? Or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in that sort of creativity, the way of we're, we're sort of inventing things as religions and then claiming that those things are then offended, right? Um, but also the way too um, of dealing with you know, the particular moment, say, of, of religious offenses, uh, in the case of Islam, deliberately offending Muslims to try to provoke something, right? And, and say, okay, what's going on there? What issues of possibly national identity, immigration, what sort of questions are being negotiated through this kind of discourse and problem of offense? So I think it produces a lot of problems, right? Mm. Right, yeah, and right, because the discourse on religious freedom, because it normally happens or occurs, in the mainstream within a certain religious group tends to maybe not apply so much to other religious groups in popular imaginings, right? Yeah, I mean, it depends a lot on who's in power, you know, and, yes. and who gets to determine what counts as offensive. Because even, of course, as we well know, those very people who claim pure free speech rights to offend other people can often themselves be very easily offended, right? So the same people who are saying we should have the unlimited rights to draw you know, images of the Prophet Muhammad are the same people who would say, but this baker needs to not bake a cake because that's offensive to him, right? Um, and so, you know, you could draw, I mean, you could work that out. You could sort of draw connections, but it is, yeah, it's often pretty selective about what it is that you choose to be offended by. Um, so I'm interested in those problems. Another thing that I'm kind of interested on the religion issue is less to do with specific religions like Christians or Muslims and more to do with things like um, problems of profanation like in other words to take something that is sacred that is mm. where you know, when i ask you hey this is sacred to me please show some reverence or respect for it even if it's not sacred to you and you deliberately say no i'm not going to do that i'm going to i'm going to you know i'm going to draw this image that i know is something that's a profanation to you and what's interesting to me about that is going back in kind of classic 
Durkheimian understandings of what the sacred does is the sacred produces a kind of social power, right? It says, mm. we agree, we respect this, right? Um, and because we agree to respect this, we also agree to respect the system of rules and norms and codes that this authorizes, this stands behind. Um, and when somebody says, I'm going to profane that, I'm not going to treat that as special. I'm going to treat that as ordinary. Now, there's a challenge to those rules and norms and codes. Um, and I think in a way, getting back to like the Trumpian problem, part of what Trump is doing is he's sort of saying, I'm not following your rules. Like I'm not following these norms and codes. I'm going to say things that are taboo. I'm going to say things that shouldn't be said. Um, and that scene is kind of producing a certain kind of power, a kind of dangerous power that is either really terrifying or really exciting depending upon how you feel about that form of insult. And so I'm, I'm kind of going back to some of those like classic history of religions, discussions of the sacred and profane, and trying to understand how religious offenses play on those registers. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's very interesting to me. I spent many years of my life uh, immersed in uh, new atheist literature, you know, and... Oh, okay. Yeah, and and while well, I was like into it, you know. Um, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and and then uh, you know, ten years later, now I study it. But uh, I was I was really. Well, what got you interested in new atheism? Uh, well, I mean, what, what what was it appealing to you at the time? What were you like? Oh, this is this is so this gets it. Yeah, I was so I was raised in a home uh, that just wasn't religious and <laughs> was like vaguely but not avowedly anti-religion. You know, okay. and so, and I like struggled to, I really wanted meaning. And I think like my whole life and to make sense of things, I was having panic attacks about dying from a very young age and all this stuff. Um, and I found science as mm. a means, as a phenomenon happening in the world today, you know, where things could be like, as logical and as rational, quote unquote, as I wanted them to be. And still, because scientists are nowadays stepping into these shoes of being like pseudo philosophers, right. Talking about mm -hmm. the meaning right. of life and stuff. Uh, I was, I was really allied to that. And so mm -hmm. when, okay. when Richard Dawkins, you know, wrote the God delusion, I was all about it. Um, because it sort of, it married those two worlds. And I mean, it, it did that for so many people, you know, it was such a hit because that's what so many people were, were doing, but I just, yeah. So it's, it's interesting to me in these discourses on religious freedom, because like you can have inter-religious conversation about it, but also, you know, step from the outside and there's this big, like massive, you know, group of more secular uh, thinking that is growing, that is disdainful of, of religion and does, and sort of wants to discard the category of the sacred. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. And so kind of interesting too, it's always, well, what offends them? You know, I'm always, because everybody's a by something, you know, and so it's always, and so sometimes what's interesting is the kind of sacrosanct categories of free speech or, or science mm -hmm. or things like that can also become, you know, make people really nervous, you know. Um, yeah. It's interesting. It's fascinating. Um, I, that sentence was very interesting. Everybody's offended by something, right? Would you say that that's kind of universally true and, and, and why? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, well, I think, I mean, maybe that's not true. I don't, I haven't actually <laughs> you know, there's somebody someplace, there's some, you know, Lenny Bruce out there is purely not offended by something. But, but usually, you know, even those people who are equal opportunity offenders, the South Park people or something like that. So he's like, nothing bothers me, nothing offends me. Um, 
what, what sometimes might offend them is the flip side to that, is to challenge that system, is to sort mm. of say, okay, what offends me is you're taking offense. Like, that offends me. The fact that somebody would put some limit or constraint on me would ask me to consider the sensibilities of other people in a way that I think I shouldn't have to do. Right? Mm. Um, I once wrote a crazy piece uh, a few years ago on the cognitive science of religion where I kind of I kind of talked a little bit about folks like Dennett and things like that, um, mm -hmm. where I was interested in how um, like post-colonial critiques of scientific universalism mm. felt them like a profanation of a certain thing that they hold very dear, which is the image of kind of secular heroism, the image that that I believe in free inquiry and free thought and free speech. And now you're coming along and telling me that these are just issues about colonialism and they, they reflect gender and class and race and all those things. And I don't, I hate that, right? Or I'm not, I don't hate that, but I'm saying a certain kind of, uh, a certain kind of universalist, positivist, scientific, secular hero sure. feels that that really denigrates them, you know, to sort of say, this is all just about the colonial production of knowledge. You, you've, mm really undercut and undermined um, something that I hold very dear. Right? You know, so that's kind of maybe what I might mean. So it's, I think it's very hard to have something where you're just like, I really don't care about what anybody else in the world thinks. Um, yeah. So I don't know how many people actually inhabit or embody that position. Yeah, I would imagine that it would be more like if hypothetically that would be the kind of person who like imposed a universal effective distance from their you know, feelings, but I, I think. Yeah. And it's, once again, that could be right. I, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a psychologist. So, I mean, somebody, there could be lots of different sorts of conditions of which I'm not aware of. But, but, but I mean, but also like the psychological literature on quote sacred values, right? Like mm. we, I think we probably tend, everybody like has to have something that's the most important to them relative to other things, you know? Um, yeah. I don't, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. I mean, it's, or certainly people do, tend to have certain things that, that are like, okay, but this here is special. This is something that, um, um, I, I, you know, this is something you can't touch, right? And so what, what is that to somebody? Yeah, and maybe, like, maybe often those things have to do with not just, you know, they have to do with your identity and your group identity. I think those things tend to also be very sensitive, you know, and even if we don't think of them first order as something that's related to identity, say your ideas about God, they are ultimately wrapped up with, you know, the community and the identity with which you sort of share with people who share that. Yeah, different forms of identification are huge. And then I'm really interested in that problem. And that's especially where, at least within this liberal moment, where we're like, oh, that's what you can't do. That's what you can't target. You know, that's where we really uh, have to have rules that are clear about how different people identify and different ways of, of asking for respect and consideration of those identity. Um, and uh, on the other hand, resistance to asking to consider other people's forms of identification. Right. And that it makes sense, you know, and not to say what, what is right or what isn't, but it, it, it makes sense that humans would resist to change. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Well, you know, and I think different people respond to that in different ways. I mean, I think a lot of, I mean, one of the things I'm interested too is, I mean, getting back to that, issue that say we have this populist moment where people are, are resistant to a feeling vulnerable and feeling like they're losers and therefore they need to be winners. And why I've always been interested, why is that distributed in the way it is? In other words, I live in Trump country. I live in a, a town in, in uh, 
South Georgia that probably, uh, I think the county went 60% for Trump, right? And so a lot of, so part of what animated this book is I'm, I'm talking to people, you know, out in Trump country. And it is interesting, what is it about a small town world that tends to produce a certain kind of conservatism? Why is it that cities mm -hmm. vote overwhelmingly for the party opposite, uh, but small towns and rural areas? And we can find that in England, we can find that in France, we can find it in the United States. There's something about population density, weirdly, that seems to have a great deal of influ influence on, on, on people. And I think part of what I, I think it has something to do with is the sense to which, like if you're in a town like Statesboro, Georgia, mm -hmm. everything is really, familiar. You know everybody, you know their cousins, you know their grandpa, you know, you, know you, um, you go into a diner, everybody knows your name. And it's a kind of tightly normed world that makes you feel safe. You like that familiarity, you like predictability, you know, whereas the world of like a city, and I've lived in New York, and I've lived in California, and I've also lived in places like South Georgia and Central Pennsylvania, a city is someplace where you like novelty you like diversity you you're like great there's 60 different kinds of cuisines in a 10 block area i like that that's neat to me um and i like the kind of energy of a city and i like chaos um and so um and when i go to a small town in rural georgia i'm not saying me but for that person uh this feels boring there's nothing here i can't get indian food right i can't you know i can't get the things that i want um and the people in the small town feel that condescension and it's returned with a great deal of resentment. But so what's interesting is, is the people in small town world want safety. They want security. They want familiarity. In that sense, they're the ones who are resistant to change. Um, but of course, not everybody's resistant to change in the same way because other people, particularly if you don't particularly like the way things are, uh, might welcome change, might welcome sort of novelty. Um, and so there's something about the world of cities, you, you really have to learn to live with other people. You can't, you can't expect or rely on a certain kind of familiarity within limits, you know, I'm not saying, uh, because at the same time, um, the world of a city to a certain kind of person seems dangerous, right? Seems because that's unpredictable. It's, it's, it's well, how, how, do you, how do you live in those spaces? Um, and so I'm interested in, in who feels vulnerable where. Right. And, and that's kind of an interesting problem. And it does seem to be kind of predictive of, of a lot of political affiliations, you know, mm -hmm. how you feel about novelty, how you feel about change versus to what extent you want things to be familiar and the same and the way they are. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I haven't heard it pitched in terms of vulnerability before, you know, yes, in power, but not in vulnerability. And is is it in a sense that much of our political discourse is actually in an attempt to not be vulnerable or to bolster vulnerabilities? Or it's feeding on vulnerabilities. You know, like it's, it's a sense, I mean, and vulnerability is perception, right? I mean, so a lot of times, you know, the people say, if I'm taking my own location, I mean, the people here, it's a pretty safe place, but they're very likely to have a gun in their house to protect themselves against crime, right? You know, that, that's, and so it's a feeling of vulnerability. It's the perception that I'm losing something, you know, so things are not the way they were, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and that gets back to that sense, you know, really winning and losing is less an objective condition, is something that's kind of imagined relative to other people. Like, you know, I was in power, um, things, you know, we all celebrated the same holidays, we all ate the same food, now we don't. Now I, I have to say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, and that, that, that drives me insane for some reason. Um, and so I think it's that, that 
that sense of, of you've lost something. So oftentimes the people who feel the most vulnerable might still be objectively kind of powerful, right? But it's, it's a feeling of loss of power. It's a feeling that that power is under threat in some ways. And so I think if you can animate that, and that's part of the, the, what populist discourse does, is it animates that it's like we are under threat from that in some way. Um, and that can be a very kind of powerful uh, political rhetoric. Right, because the underlying conditions don't necessarily match what people are talking about, right? And sort of creating this idea, fed probably by their own fears, right? Everybody's sort of fed by their own fears, creating these ideas that you're losing something. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, once again, it doesn't mean that people aren't indeed vulnerable in all sorts of ways, uh, but that, that perception is not always, well, I don't even know what objectively that would even be, uh, but certainly you're dealing with how things are imagined. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think that, you know, getting back to that image of the left's response to liberalism is to say, wait a second, you've got a completely out of whack idea of who's actually vulnerable versus who actually, you know, needs power or, or what, what equality would actually look like. Um, and so there's also a discourse of vulnerability um, and, and a willingness, you know, getting back to like the Cambridge speech things, willingness to acknowledge one's own vulnerabilities, to say, I do have sensibilities that can be offended. Um, and I think that's important. And I think that the system needs to respect that, right? And so that's, so I think there's different ways of articulating who is vulnerable. Um, and it often isn't necessarily clearly connected to who is actually in power. Yeah. and so. Do you think that perhaps, like maybe it is a refusal to recognize vulnerabilities that actually in part, you know, contributes to this sort of thing? Like uh, if, because I'm trying to imagine how we might be able to move beyond these kinds of fear mongering discourses. And one way I actually had a conversation with somebody in the last episode of this podcast. Um, oh, they okay. talked, they talked a lot about, um, working with racism and helping people learn about their own feelings, you know? And so mm -hmm. I wonder like if we sort of somehow found a way to like put us in touch with our fears and turn that into something that is connective as opposed to repulsive between other people, you know, you can like connect well, across yeah. political divides. Go ahead. I mean, a way of, um, you know, one way of thinking about, it, I mean, one way that fear is animated is often prejudice, right? It's a way of, um, it's a way of dealing with a novel situation. You're dealing with somebody you don't know, you haven't met. Um, and so you have certain prejudicial understandings of them and that allows you to kind of make sense of the world. You know, like I, I feel like I know this, I, I know this situation, I, I can handle this. Mm -hmm. uh, but what am I appealing to? I'm appealing to my common sense, right? I'm appealing to my common sense ideas. And what is that common sense? Well, it's a series of pre-critical assumptions about the world, which is another way of saying prejudice, right? Mm. Um, and that's what makes me feel safe. That's how I can novel, you know, situations. So a lot of it is making people comfortable with the idea of not necessarily being so safe, you know, that, that that's part of, uh, part of, you know, being able to take risks, which doesn't mean to, yeah, to do the flip side, to say we have to completely offend everybody and everything, but it's to kind of critically think about what is it that one, you know, I mean, you know, one of the ironies about, and, and people point this out all the time, the sort of snowflake discourse, right? You know, that the people who, who sort of 
you know, you're too easily offended, you're a snowflake, you're going to melt. You know, those people who often launch that critique are often those who are deeply afraid, deeply vulnerable, and very easily offended by saying happy holidays, right? You know, things like, so those sorts of ironies are interesting. And it's useful for everybody to reflect on them because after all, there are legitimate reasons to say, hey, I am vulnerable and I need to be safe in some ways. So I'm not attacking the concept of safety. I'm not asking people to be insecure, but it's maybe good to reasonably respect upon, reflect upon how, how endangered are you actually? Is it does it really threaten you if somebody says happy holidays? I, I mean, that to take a trite example. But. Right. Um, and so maybe this is a good point to uh, talk about Steve Bannon as an example of this, right? Okay. Because this is, this is sort of like his wheelhouse, is it not? Right. To leverage these fears and vulnerabilities? Yeah, I mean, I think exactly. And, um, you know, and he, so yeah, and there's a weird sense of on one hand being this, swaggering masculinist, I don't give a shit, I will take a, you know, I don't, I'll do whatever I want. Uh, at the same time, a tremendous anxiety about the loss of Christian civilization and mm. the loss of our nation and the loss of a way of life, right? Um, and it's interesting how those two things come together at the same time. Um, and so on one hand, there's this, there's this move of deliberately offending liberals, right? And in the way it's that, you know, that that, uh, how people say it around here, liberal with, with two syllables, you know, um, and um, that, and that, that a real disdain for that, those kind of weak people who are giving everything away. They're, they're causing us to lose. Um, but then a real sense that, gosh, we're losing, you know, and we're really worried about that. And so therefore we need to fight back. We need to be aggressive. We need to challenge them. Um, and so there, and that and part of that means deliberately giving offense and not apologizing and never apologizing. And I think that's also an interesting thing because after all, apologies do important social work. When people apologize, they recognize they did something wrong or harmed somebody in some ways and they try to repair social damage. When somebody says, I'm not doing that, it creates a kind of interesting social problem. Like, well, what do we do? Like we're not, somebody is not interested in repairing that social damage. Right. Um, and I'm kind of interested in how that works. Right. It's, it implies that you're not interested in working on a problem together, but rather prefer to be on your own or against, continue to be against this person as opposed to, you know, united yeah. as a nation, whatever. Yeah. You're saying we are, it's a, it's a world of friends and enemies, you know, and that's, and in here I'm kind of drawing on a kind of old political theory tradition that, that, um, looks at the problem of friend and enemy as its own problem. And it's sort of a division of the world into that. You know, there's a division. Mm -hmm. So rather than try to work, so it's a kind of radical repudiation of liberal ideals of equality, however artificial those ideas might be, um, and say, no, that's not equal. No, we have friends, there's us and there's them. You know, mm -hmm. there's strong and there's weak. Um, there's, and so, and so you just, in a world in which you're either strong or you're weak, you want to be one of the strong ones, right? And so when you adopt that worldview, it's a kind of necessary warfare model, right? You're not really going to fix it. You're not going to arrive at some sort of compromise that's going to keep everybody happy. You just need to win and understand that they're going to lose. And that's, mm. and that's the kind of hierarchy that you're trying to produce. And I mean, that sounds very, well, I mean, yeah, that is in some ways, I think that that way of framing it might seem sort of an attack, but I think that, you know, people would say, yeah, that is more or less, I think Steve Mann would be like, yeah, that's how I see the world, you know.
Hmm. Um, it's they're strong and there's weak and I'm one of the strong ones. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and that's sort of related to the way in which we relate to, uh, like civility or being polite, Mm -hmm. right? Um, because at one point I think civility was probably associated with a particular kind of strength, but it has since, it has since been thrown overboard for the kind of strength that is now seen as like more abrasive or like it doesn't care particularly about how it impacts you or your feelings, right? It's almost like a bulldozer. Like that's the kind of strength that's being valued in these discourses. Yeah. Well, it has, you know, it has something to do with being a citizen, being a person who's living in civil society. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when you're thinking about that, I mean, you're, you have laws and sort of basic laws where, you know, the things that we're going to do, if you, if you do this, you're going to jail. And civility is a sort of a, an extra level of expectation. Like we're not, you know, we're not going to throw you in jail for offending somebody, but we would expect that you don't do it in purpose. So if you're civil, you know, in, in a, you're in a, a, a wine and cheese dinner, you're not going to just start screaming, right? You don't go to jail for it. It's just a thing you don't usually do. But if somebody decides they're going to do that, that creates kind of problem, right? Um, and so civility is a sort of a set of norms, expectations that aren't necessarily enforced. They're sort of enforced through social censure, right? They're, they're enforced through social expectations. You learn sort of codes of behavior. Um, and that sort of distances you from somebody who is shameless, somebody who doesn't care, somebody who doesn't know those codes of behavior. Um, and so in that sense, civility can be kind of restricting. It can often part of, you know, for me, I mean, my, and so my version of being a new atheist once upon a time is I was a big Lenny Bruce fan in, in, you know, in high school and I memorized whole chunks of Lenny Bruce narrative. And so mm-hmm. I had this real strong sense of, yes, you know, do not suppress the word, say everything, because in that sense, civility, it hides, it represses, it conceals. So, you know, we don't really talk about the conflicts that are there. And if we just got them all out there, we could really do some sort of important work. And there is that. So a lot of times civility can be used, especially institutional. Institutionally is very repressive. You know, on the basis of civility, we need to repress this form of political speech because we Mm. find it to be dangerous, right? On the other hand, civility might be something that creates the conditions for more speech, right? And it can be invoked in different ways, in the same way that all these words like freedom and civilization can be invoked for all sorts of different things. And so I'm interested, yeah, that this sense of this willful incivility, on one hand, Steve Bannon, I don't give a shit, I'm going to offend everybody. Um, and free speech allows me to do that. Um, but at the same time, he has this defense of civilization, right, which goes to this sense to which, yes, we're civilized, we're, we're sort of different from the barbarian others. And, and, and I'm interested in how all of these things sort of come together, often in really not necessarily coherent ways. Mm. And so through this lens, right, how, how, would, how does Trump fit into these sorts of practices and ideas? Because he's similar to, but different from Bannon. Yeah, um, I think he is somebody who definitely is incivil, you know, and, and takes pride in that in a certain kind of way. Um, and he's somebody who definitely understands of strength and, and definitely I would the one thing that he and Bannon have in common and he's definitely somebody well I don't definite but I'm pretty confident somebody who sees the world in terms of the weak and the strong you know he sees the world in terms of friends and enemies he sees the world in terms of loyalty and disloyalty it's more of those kind of things and so there's sort of there's a kind of 
visceral sense of, of projecting strength at all times. And that appeals to a certain kind of person who's like, yes, I feel weakened by these liberal constraints, right? The fact that, you know, I used to be able to tell sexist jokes in the office and it was fine. I, mm -hmm. Nobody had a problem with that. Once again, that, that says something about a particular location, but that's somebody who sees the world through that. And now all of a sudden this is a problem, right? When did that become a problem? And so that's felt as a kind of loss. I, I've lost some kind of freedom. I've lost some sort of power. And Trump promises to restore that. He's like, yes, I will get that back for you. I will get you back to a world in which you can just say what you want, do what you want, don't worry about all of these others who are making these demands and constraints on you. And in that part, he's kind of similar to Bannon. Um, I think Bannon had a lot of hope for him as an economic populist as well. And that's still a kind of unclear category. And I don't think Trump has that sort of ideological commitment. I think Trump likes money and he likes people who make money. Um, and so I don't think he's ever really been the kind of guy who, you know, he sort of feels out um, the West Virginia coal miner and thinks, yeah, I can, I can get this guy. But in the end, he's not spending a single night in West Virginia, right? That's not his world. He likes rich New Yorkers and that's his world. And he's quite comfortable in that world. Um, and so I don't think that Trump has that sort of ideological commitment. I think he likes to be liked. I think he likes to be powerful. I think he likes to make money. Um, and in that sense, he's also getting back to the prejudice thing, really good at sizing people up. He's good at talking to people in, in the way a salesman would and be like, what does this person want? You know, what is this person, you know? And so I was thinking about this reading Art of the Deal and he has all these comments that really, you know, it's like, I could tell this person wanted this, you know, I could tell, you know, he's the kind of guy, he's an, he's an upper west side rich guy. He's a, he's a this guy. He sort of locates people in these kind of generic prejudicial categories and that shows his own wisdom. You know, he can, he can navigate this. Um, and I think that's very important to him. And therefore, I don't think he has a kind of ideological commitment to nationalism that someone like Bannon would have in the same way. But I might be wrong about that. Right. So uh, what, what might, does he have any ideological commitments? I mean, you mentioned enjoying making money. Um, yeah, I think, I think in a way, I don't know if it's an ideology, but it is a kind of a, a worldview. It's like, yeah, I seek to, you know, in a way, it's not that complicated. It's like, I, I, I kind of make it self-interest. I mean, that, that's the way I see the world. I'm here to succeed. I'm here to win. Um, and I'm here to do whatever it takes to do that. And I'm going to help me and my family and whoever is loyal to me at that particular moment. Um, and I think in a way, I mean, you know, we've made a lot of sort of Russia's interest in, I'm sorry, Trump's interest in Russia and all that. Mm -hmm. and I have no idea what the deal there is, except that I do think that he probably sees like the Russian oligarch as a kind of model, like, because those guys make billions, you know, like fast. And I think, you know, and, and so you become comfortable with a certain kind of corruption, right? So mm -hmm. what they can do is they can make tons of money at the public till. And if somebody criticizes them, they can kill them. It's like, that's great. You know, I would like to live in that world. I'm not, I would like to, but I'm, me being Donald Trump would like to live in that world where you can do that. And I think, and so I don't know if that's an ideology exactly, because it's not really a coherent political theory but it's a kind of visceral sense of living in the world that might be inhabited by a lot of people. You know, that that's, I mean, what, it, what motivates the, the corrupt oligarch? Well, it's a sense to which I want to get stuff for me, you know, and um, I think that's a very powerful motivator. Yeah, I think, I think it, I think it is. Um, we're, we're sort of, I'd like to often end on 
forecasting or positive notes. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've, well, I haven't been super us. positive. Yeah. Good luck. Um, <clears throat> so I, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about what we can do to, you know, soften the sort of aggressive, I don't want to say partisanship, but the aggressive nature of this sort of dichotomous, weak, strong discourse that we have. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I'm right still. I mean, I think I'm right, at least for some people. I also don't know if in the end, how, if that's how popular that, that system is going to remain. You know, so right now, Brexit is going down in flames, right? You know, the um, Trump is, you know, sh drifting below 40% popularity, and he's never really, you know, been at 50%. And so it's possible that, that not, you know, this is not everybody's worldview. This is that there is senses of fairness that people have that if you can kind of bring them back down to earth, they sort of recognize, okay, I don't actually need this. You know, I don't need to divide the world into friends and enemies in this way. Um, and so it might just simply be building on the resources that are there, you know, like it, it's, it's, you're not, and so I don't know how much of a crisis liberal institutions are in. I mean, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Um, there's certainly, there are certain critics out there. Um, and I don't know, you know, and I still also have a leftist sense that maybe liberal institutions aren't the best all the time for solving all the world's problems. Um, but I think a lot of it is, I mean, I think there's two things in terms of being hopeful. One is they may not be as powerful as they think. Maybe, maybe there's a reason they're sort of feeling vulnerable, that, that they are losing certain kinds of power, whoever they are. Um, and um, so that might, might be something. Um, and... Um, and the other thing is it's maybe not totally wrong to be aggressive back, you know, and I think that's um, what a lot of people where they've been successful is instead of trying to appease uh, a Steve Bannon or a Donald Trump, you just fight them, you know, and, and I think that, that, that has been where, and I think we're seeing that at least in the States, a kind of a new energy into a kind of progressive movement, right? So rather than appeasing it, you're coming back and saying we want a 70% marginal you know, on, the, on everybody making over 10 million bucks, right? That's the response. You know, the response is, no, we're just going to push back in the other direction. And it's possible that this moment has, has created the, the possibilities of that. That is, it's a, a critique of liberalism from a different place. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it is fascinating, you know, which is actually very interesting because as much as we have in academia, you know, the sort of critique of the progress narrative, uh, hmm. it, it doesn't itself sort of embrace its own, you know, progress narrative of, oh, well, we will, you know, we're, we're still, we're still going strong. This is just a blip. Um, yeah, I, I don't have any, my thing is, I just think what you see in history, I'm sort of with John Dewey on this, it's, it's just, you, it's, you have change, you have change, things change, they happen, uh, they don't necessarily get better, they don't necessarily get worse. Um, and so, and, and really what you're dealing with are kind of more local problems, you know, you see changing things and things will change in some ways, uh, but things can change possibly for the better, depending upon how you see the better. So I don't think there's any inevitability to progress, right? I'm right. sort of with Martin Luther King in that way. Um, but I think things, just at the specific point that you'd asked, I don't know if populism is maybe as strong as it thinks it is. It, 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 may, it may peter out, um, but I don't know. I'm not sure about that at all. Yeah, well, uh, in a couple of years, if our planet is still here, I'll have you back. We yeah. can chat about it. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe the whole story in the end. But 
Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, thank you so much. If uh, I don't know if you have anything else that, that you would like to yeah, say. Yeah, this is great. It's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you very, very much. Do you have, I think I noticed your, you have a Twitter. Yeah, it's very funny because a lot of the people that I talk with are academics and I come from a world. I have a history of working in nutrition and women's health. And when you go on a podcast, you have a list of like 10 social media profiles you want people to follow and like books. That you oh. But I talk, yeah. I talk to academics and they're like, well, I have an academia.edu that I updated two years ago, you know? Like, so Yeah, I kind of um, have that. Yeah, I'm not that different. Yeah, I, I mean, I have the Twitter. I tweet like once a month or something. So it's, it's, you tweeted you yesterday, know. so I'll look for another one in four weeks. Oh, okay, yeah. So, I mean, it's not consistent. Um, I don't, uh, and I don't, I mean, there are people who do a lot of work. And so I, I probably follow it also inconsistently. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I kind of, I mean, one thing about this book project, it started, because um, I do have this blog that's also inconsistent. I might post a couple things. I might go six months without writing something. It's just sort of when the spirit moves me, I just mm -hmm. sort of write something. Um, but I did notice it's like, you know, up to 40,000 hits or so. And I was like, oh, so some people are reading this thing. And I was trying to write a more accessible style. And that's part of, to some extent, what drove me to this book. So I'm trying to write something that is a little more accessible than my last book. You know, my last book was pretty dense. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely something that uh, somebody would have need to work through a lot of political theory. And this one will be also, but I, I'm hoping I can reach a bigger audience, you know, because I do think that's important. I mean, that's a lot of what you're trying to do with this, this podcast. But so I don't know if Twitter, at least for me, is, is necessarily that, but um, maybe I should do more. I don't know. Yeah, well, we're we're always saying that, right? Um, when the time comes, I will do what I can to help you promote the book. Okay, and, thanks. Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, okay, cool. So I'll provide um, links to Finbar's blog uh, and and what. Oh happened. yeah, I you don't even. I mean, um, I think the most recent. I don't think I've written anything in months. Yes, yeah, so I wouldn't. <laughs> um, the most recent one might be something my friend Carrie wrote or something like that. But no, I was just thinking about it, as you said. That's about as far as I get into the world of. Sure. Um, which maybe a, I don't know, maybe that's not a great thing, but it's something I haven't thought a whole lot about, um, necessarily. Cause you know, I'm obviously sort of knee deep in my job, you know, as, as mm -hmm. things would be, so, uh, that, that tends to keep you occupied. Yeah. The academic life. Yeah. Yeah. More okay. or less. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, well, you can definitely, uh, find his books in libraries and on Amazon. So I'll link to those. Um, and everybody knows where to find me. Um, this is the Meaning of Everything podcast, and I will uh, I will be back next week. Thank you a lot, Finbar. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. It's fun. Yeah.